Okay, you can be seated. God bless you. I bring you greetings, of course, this morning from the Bethany Baptist Church, the oldest congregation of Baptists founded by African Americans in the great city of Newark, America's third oldest city. I bring you greetings also from the central ward of Newark, uh, which is ground zero for the explosion of frustration two generations ago, and the repair and the healing of that community remains undone. So it is with a sense of joy and trepidation that I leave that great congregation to come to this place. Uh, mixed feelings, you might say. And um, as you see from the printed program, I am to speak today on a subject looking for Pentecost. And um, it's easy to confuse uh, that title with uh, Pentecost Sunday, which comes on next Sunday. I hope you can recall the excellent reading of John's Gospel today uh, because in that reading uh, I will find the foundation of my brief words to you. You see, the power of God that is invested in you and me for the living of our days is not a power rooted in the culture and the machinations of human beings. Instead, it is a power not of this world, though in the world, and meant to have relevance to the affairs of human community. It is not itself of this world, does not have its origin in the world. For those who invest their hope in the promise of the Trinity, we believe that Jesus was a tangible manifestation of the invisible God. Human beings seem hardwired to need tangible evidence of the reality of something. We don't do so well, at least not for very long, if there is no material support to substantiate what we hold as true. Left alone without it, we soon forget. A good bit of the biblical text in the Hebrew and Greek bear witness to the human tendency to forget. In the pericope read from John's Gospel today, Jesus is in fact exposing his own anxiety, his own compassion for those whom he will leave behind that in his physical absence, their kinship with God will fade. The source of their joy and their sense of being connected to a power and authority that is not constrained by the world or the culture of mortals will be lost. He wonders, hoping the Father will answer, what will happen to the faith and devotion of those to whom he has sent me 
when they no longer have him in the flesh to remind them. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. Now this one refers not to organizational oneness or even operational collaboration among believers in their work, but to the oneness that believers ought feel with God as in the mutuality that exists between Jesus and the Father, one commentator puts it, each glorifies the other. The actions and words of the one are the actions and words of the other. Jesus asks that the church display the reciprocal abiding that characterizes true love. Solidarity with God, you might say. A mighty high calling for us in our ordinariness. A calling we can hardly approach under our own power. Pentecost, I believe, is God's answer to Jesus' petition. The Holy Spirit of God, a mysterious wind, not of this world, came upon those assembled in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost described in Acts 2 and evidently compelled them to behave in ways that were uncommon and, un and involuntary. People from many locations and many different ways of life with worldly distinctions that may well have kept them isolated one from the other. Yet this unpredicted spirit enabled, empowered them to hear in other languages as if they were their own. This is the first of the fruits of the spirit, in my judgment. It offers a glimpse of the very personality of God. Human beings like ourselves sufficiently freed of selfishness from fear of the unfamiliar that they can recognize their destiny, the one they share in common. Luke writes in Acts 4 that believers in the early church sold their possessions and shared with one another as each had need. Verse 34a in that chapter says there was not a needy person among them. That was the nature of their absolute dependence on faith in the promises of God. Beloved, if there ever was a time in this world and in this nation for faith and trust and mutual understanding and selfless sharing like that. It is now. And there is so much opulence existing alongside bewildering poverty. The New York Times reported in its electronic edition on yesterday the compensation of the 200 top paid CEOs of American companies. I noticed today's edition uh, 
tells us why they were awarded such high pay. Maybe an excuse. Now, I'm not here to disparage these individuals, presumably men and women of honorable light, and I expect their compensation committees were required to show in the company's Form 10-K to the SEC just why they rationalized such big bonuses and stock awards. But you know, if we just sit out on the deck and look up at the sky and feel the breeze of truth on our faces, if we take a deep breath and just look at the numbers with plain eyes, separate from all the culture and regulation that is driving pay for executives, these numbers look bizarre to me when we consider that all of us occupy the same space and breathe the same dirty air. Our fate is intertwined. The smarter we are, the more physical options we have, the more inclined we are to ignore this unwavering truth. And our world is getting smaller and smaller. As I flew here yesterday from Newark, in front of me and in back of me in the airplane, people spoke words that I didn't understand. An incongruity at its height when so few have so much and so many have so little. Now, having firm roots in the liberal ecumenical wing of Christianity as I do, I want to assure you today that my appeal is not for left-leaning advocacy on behalf of the least of these, at least not today. But rather, my appeal is to you, presumably people of faith, all faiths really, to embrace the abiding nearness of God as the source of our purpose and hope, as a source of the strength to resist the pull of the world's values and shaping our personal character. Believers must regain, if not gain, an overt palpable reliance on the power of the Spirit they must show readiness to rely upon that power in the most concrete and urgent aspects of life. We must risk, in the name of that spirit, the whole world is hunger for such examples, not the least of which is our own country. By the way, the baby doesn't disturb me. <laughs> now, uh, while I confess to not having read every line of that recent Pew poll on the declining percentage and raw numbers of Americans who no longer call themselves Christian, I bet if I got behind those numbers, if I got behind those numbers, I would likely find that people don't really reject the principles of Christianity outright, not even the theology of Christianity, but they do not see 
a consistency between its best teachings and real practices among its adherents. They do not see our reliance on the power of the Spirit to open our hearts and to share in its capacity to shape the course of our everyday lives. We have been fully exposed, I fear. We are seduced by a power that is subject to death, a corrupting power, a power that seeks its own way, one that is bound to the things we can perceive with our physical selves. So much of what appears to motivate us can be dismissed as predictably calculating and self-serving. And that is why, that is why I am looking for Pentecost. Not so much Pentecost Sunday, but true Pentecost. Let's say a new Pentecost. I'm looking for a compelling spirit to be poured out upon us to renew our courage to renew our devotion, to embolden us to live with joy and with less caution, to find our security in that nearness, that proximity, that relationship, that solidarity with God, which is ours through Jesus Christ. Now this is the journey I'm on. This is my quest. And I invite you, let's travel together. Let's not be dissuaded by the material world that we know. For it is fading with every breath we take. To God be the glory.